0: Hello, and welcome to The Green Team, where patrons of the Legendarium gather to talk about the books and topics our favorite podcast hasn't covered yet. Today we're going to talk about The Catechal for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller, winner of the 1961 Hugo Award. With me today, I have the two other cats that need herding, Eridandis. Hello. And Yasna as a boy. Hi there. And how did I get left in charge? Mechanical for Leibowitz is a three-part book, each part taking place 600 years apart. In a post-apocalyptic nuclear world, the civilization hangs on a thread, and a monastic initiate discovers a treasure trove of artifacts from before the deluge. They behind the stone walls of their monastery, founded by the mysterious Leibowitz and his bookleggers. In a world that has become hostile towards reading, science, and knowledge in, in general, they await for a time when the people are ready to learn again. In this episode, it will be mostly spoilers, but before we start with spoilers, how do you rate this book on a five-star scale, and who would you
1: recommend this book to? Do you Eric? want to go first, you Okay, me. So um, I am going to call this a classic, five out of five, um, I'm gonna recommend it for anybody who likes post-apocalyptic worlds. Um, This book is essentially the archetype for post-apocalyptic worlds in general. Um, It is a a future envisioning a a nuclear holocaust. Um, So basically for anybody who likes post-apocalyptic worlds or also likes books that involve um, a lot of level two and level three um, depths in it, then I would recommend it highly. How about you, Yosna?
2: Yeah. So I would say that it's, uh, yeah, like four and a half stars four, four four and a half. Uh, and I'd recommend it to, uh, uh, both uh, like, uh, Eric said, any, uh, anyone who's into post-apocalyptic stuff, but also like, uh, there seems to be kind of a strong, like current in it that would vibe with anybody that is sympathetic to or supportive of like the, uh, like, the original, like, motives of, like, the the movement against nuclear disarmament, uh, anybody who is willing to explore, like, issues of, like, uh, religious institutions versus secular institutions and doesn't mind, uh, you know, that being explored with maybe a pro-religious bent, um, yeah, and just, uh, Uh, Anybody who likes Fallout games, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So I would probably give it a four and a half. Um, I would recommend it to anybody who, um, among the other things that have already been mentioned, anybody who's just interested in it as a historical document, as as it contributes to sci-fi. I don't know. I like to read books that... How did this thing become? It's like reading the Time Machine or reading Lovecraft or reading Dracula. If you're a horror fan, it's just um, it has it had such a big impact on the sci-fi world that if that's something you you want to read, then I would recommend this book to that person too.
1: Red, um, I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, uh, Carl Sagan, when he or Sagan, I don't know how you pronounce. It. Um, when he, wrote the, uh, when he read the book, he said that this is how uh, a post-apocalyptic world would actually look like. So that's just kind of in support to your point. Um,
0: and Okay, Error, we're gonna try this again, because the first time around, <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> Could you briefly describe why you think it's good to read
1: books with brevity? Sure, I'll give you three reasons and I'll keep them brief. Okay. One, information density. Uh, you get more information per, per word than you do in larger books. Two, uh, it respects the reader's time and intelligence. doesn't try to spoon feed you. It just gives you the information and you figure it out. And three, it is the most efficient and best way to communicate raw thought. Because that's the purpose of writing in the first place, is to communicate thought to you. And um, if you combine the first two, that's how you achieve uh, number three. And that's it.
0: Very well done. Do you have a response to that, Yasna? Something you want to add?
2: Uh, yeah. I well, I don't. I don't know if we like really set it up this time as well as <laughs> it's last okay time. though. It's uh, so uh, for anybody who might be listening to this who hasn't read *Canticle for Leibowitz*, it's, it's a it's a shorter piece of fiction. uh it, box in at only about like 10 hours. I don't know how that like works that. in terms of page counts or word counts. But
1: yeah, but it's a. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Tell us the page. Or oh, the word count. Era, tell us the word
1: count first. It's we'll 95,000 words, which is you can read um, five uh, of these books before you finish One Lorden's uh, trilogy or like One Way of King's book.
0: Okay, perfect. And so continue, Yasa.
2: Yeah, and I I just kind of wanted to I wanted to make a couple points here. One is that uh, it is harder for me, so I read a lot of long fiction and it is harder for me to break into sci-fi sometimes because the recommendations I get, from all the people that we bum around with in our discord and like people that follow the legendarium and people that are into long fantasy the sci-fi they recommend is also these like really long like multi-book series and so i'm (laughs) like oh man like i gotta add another eight books to my gigantic tbr pile that's full of long multi-book series already so it was like really refreshing to get like you guys just be like hey we're gonna do canticle for lebowitz and then i could just be like oh all right that's 10 hours of my time and i can like go into this like part of sci-fi i've never read anything like because like when i have read sci-fi it's been stuff like dune which is like uh, nowhere near the same feel as this you know it doesn't it it explores some of the same issues i think but yeah not- you know, it's, it doesn't feel the same at all, and uh, and and I stopped doing after like two books, uh, even though I plan to get back to it. It's just, you know, it's nice to be able to like, you know, read something that's short like this that has a lot of food for thought, right. Uh, right. and you know, is fun and funny, uh, and uh, also sad and sometimes dark. Uh, and you know, and there's there's just enough like, you know, there. Where, There's enough meat on the bones to, like, give you something to chew on, but it's not like this gigantic commitment, you know?
1: (laughs) And and can you have throw something on top of that? Because, I mean, because I I felt this really strongly when reading Canticle this time around. Um, I got more, you know how, like, when you read a book, you just, you just have to put it down for a second to just think about what was just said. You know, you, you know that feeling you get, like, wow, that was a great action sequence, or that's a great, wow, I have to think about it. I feel like in a well-written short book, you get those moments more than in a larger, well-written book because you're getting it almost every page, which, I, which is what I felt like I was getting in chemical.
0: Yeah, no, it's a very, very dense book, even though it's very short. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, and and uh,
2: sorry, I, I know I kind of went on for a while, but there was this other point I kind of wanted to make, and then uh, now
0: you know, it's you being too long. Uh, yeah. But,
2: No, but what what the other point I wanted to make, and I made it last time uh, we tried to do this, uh, is that even and I I found out more since we recorded this that supports this point even more. Uh, So I, I, I read a lot of long fiction and there's like a marked difference between long fiction that kind of seems like it's padded and fluffed up. And, like, where they're, like, just kind of, like, trying, they're like, well, you know, the last book was 800 pages, so we gotta make this one 900 pages, and and, and they're just stretching it, uh, and, you know, they get into, like, and then they're, you know, here's three paragraphs about the dresses they were re- wearing, and, uh, you know, the way that every character is standing, and, and blah, 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 and then uh, there's a series I'm reading now, uh, M- Malazan, Book of the Fallen, uh, and and, and and I used it last time we tried to record this as an example of like, oh, well, it's so dense and like, you know, he doesn't waste the reader's time. And then I found out later why that is. Uh, and it and it builds into Era's point about like brevity being important even more than when I last made this argument, uh, because Erickson learned, the author of and Erickson learned how to write uh, through uh a like special school of writing dedicated to short fiction and short stories and he writes each chapter like it's like it's a short story right and 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 then and then like you know finishes it and then like just picks up where next time he gets to those seeds of the story kind of picks up and writes another short story in that and 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 you can tell that that's the style. Like now that I that's been pointed out. Like and like thinking about Era's point while I heard that, I was like, oh my god! So that's why this is like this. And uh, I just want to quote <laughs> rather long-winded Polonius here say, from it's Hamlet: it's- brevity, brevity is the soul of wit." <laughs> and uh,
0: go ahead. Uh, back to, Red, what do you to, think? To you guys, uh, I I love both. I love long fiction. Um, I'm a huge Cosmere person. I've read all of Dresden multiple times um, and all of the Cosmere books multiple times. I love it. Um, but I also like to be able to dip into my toe into something different between my series. And, and uh, there are certain there are certain authors I think definitely pad. Like if you read, I love The Count of Monte, Monte Cristo, okay, but that guy was paid by the word. <laughs> and it shows. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and uh, same with Dickens. I don't think he was paid by the word. He might have been paid by the sentence, but it shows. Although they both write beautifully. Um, and I think that there are certain authors, and I'm going to put Stephen King really high on this list, as people who um, their earlier stuff is much more condensed. And they're... so The Gunslinger is a really great book. The fifth book in that in the wheel, not wheel of time. The Dark Tower series, it's like your editor just needed to say no, dude. No, we need to cut some of this. And I think that that's a, also something that sometimes happens in long fiction.
1: Yeah, and uh, I agree. You read, I mean, and I don't want to say that anything bad about long fiction because long fiction, well done, is excellent. But um, I guess the longer the series goes, or the longer the book is, the higher my expectations would be because. Uh, to Yasmin's earlier point, if you're going to ask me to invest time in a 95,000-page, 95,000-word book, um, 10 hours uh, of Audible time, okay, I can do that. I mean, you know, I can sit aside a week or two, whatever, and finish it. But if you're asking me to read a 400,000-word book or an 800-page book or, you know, 30 hours of, of Audible time, I'm expecting greatness. And, and if, I don't get it, if I don't get it, then I just, I'm not going to like the book. Man.
0: Okay, so I think we've talked about this enough. <laughs> Our, I did a much worse job policing this this time around, so we're going to start talking about spoilers. Yeah. if you don't want to be spoiled for this 60-year-old book, first of all, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's been out for over six years, Um. then stop. And for all you Legendarian fans, you know about the levels. The level one is action, level two is societal implication. And number 3 is does making does thinking about this make me a better person. Just as a warning um for everyone this book has some very very dark issues uh suicide genocide euthanasia so if you're sensitive to these issues you may want to avoid this episode. But first how how did the level 1 action work for you Yasna?
2: Um I mean I yeah I was I I, I loved it. There was a a really uh ever there was like a ever present overbearing not overbearing in a bad way but like the tone and the setting were like so present in every aspect of the action that uh you know and and and, you know that the stuff of the plot even when it was just like kind of describing the characters going into like the room in the library and like the sculptures that were in the library room or stuff like that it was like just enthralling and and uh, and, and the plot was, was engaging at, like, pretty much every step, even if I was kind of still trying to figure out what was going on. It's good.
1: How about you, Era? Um, uh, Yasna made an excellent point earlier, and I want to bring it back up. Uh, the dialogue, no, the dialogue is surprisingly good. Um, uh, better than I remembered, I guess, is what I should say. It's like I, I was actually found myself laughing when I wasn't expecting to, uh, just in terms of just on level one. I also thought the world itself, that's the main character of the story to me, the world and the institutions involved. And I thought that was really well done. Uh, so much so that I actually pulled up um, one of the old Fallout games just to take a look at it. And I was kind of like, wow. Yeah, just to kind of-
0: That's fascinating to me. Fallout is the, uh, Eris just froze, so you might want to hang up and come back on. Um. Yeah, that's the one with the bottle cap, right? Fallout?
2: Yes, uh, the bo- bottle caps of Nuka-Cola bottles and uh, Sunset Sarsaparilla bottles are the currency in Fallout.
0: That's what I thought. Yeah, I've never played it. I'm not uh, somebody who plays those types of games. Okay. You were saying Fallout?
1: I was saying uh, like Fallout. Fallout, um, the, the setting in the world that was described in Canical. I could actually see it in my mind's eye. And then when I pulled up Fallout, I'm like, wow, that's canical. So to kind of go to your earlier point, uh, Rev, and your earlier point, Yasna, it's like um, the main character is the setting and the story, I thought. And I thought it was so well represented in these books that you can even see it like in later uh, later art, uh, video games and whatnot. So um, I really, really enjoyed that the level one uh, from that aspect.
0: Um so what I the first part is my favorite part. What I really but I, what I really enjoyed about that particular one is you have this poor hapless kid and he's out in the desert and he runs into this crazy old dude. He finds some relics and then it's about how he just as a story, not as what it goes into he just falls in love with these relics and he wants to preserve them and he spends all this time creating a beautiful piece of artwork to be attributed to it. Then he goes off to meet the Pope and comes back and on his way back, he gets killed. (laughs) It's just like this tragic little story that's like you know, 80 pages (laughs) long.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, go ahead.
0: No, no, you go ahead.
2: Oh, I was just going to say in the scene where he finds the relics in this like like this like vault type thing that people hid in including the guy who like founded their church it's or, a like, fallout shelter friend.
0: yeah
2: it's like a fallout shelter and, <laughs> literally fallout
0: uh, yeah it literally is a fallout shelter
2: <laughs> and and yeah like that reminded me of like the vaults in in fallout like instantly and i thought it was really cool the way they had they had like mythologized the uh the apocalypse but and and they kind of thought that the symbols depicting fallout were like depicting like some kind of like ancient tomb of like a dragon or something
1: yeah and and if we're still yeah if we're still talking level one i think uh to the first part of the book which i thought had some powerful imagery in it too where they they talk about how um um, people who learned were educated they go through i thought it was really interesting how they basically like burned them as like you know uh, uh how we used to burn witches, uh,
0: uh right? Exactly. They, ages, right? Anybody who was educated, because they blamed science for, it, not completely unfairly, <laughs> the nuclear apocalypse, and so they burned everyone who had learning. And it's just an interesting touch. That's, that's probably what counts as
1: level two, though. Maybe, uh, it does, but it, it, maybe I mean, level two. Well, so, but, but everything counts as level two or, or level three in this book because you're talking about the crazy old man. Well, the crazy old man has a hidden meaning and Francis and his personality has another meaning. I mean, everything has multiple layers, and multiple meanings in this book. And that's that's why I like the, these shorter books that are well-written because it kind of condenses multiple things in every action, in every sequence.
0: And one of the things that's nice is that you can read it just as... The surface, but you can also you don't have to read all the you don't have to know about you know Catholic theology or anything to understand this book. And what's no, going agree,
1: on. agree. I mean, it's funny because you said you like level one. Uh, I'm sorry, the first part, the first story, the best. Yes. I actually like the I actually like the second story. Let there be man. I like that one um, the best because at that point, the second part of the story, uh, you know, civil civilization has advanced and there's this struggle of how much uh, technology do you give versus how much to keep and you have this brilliant scientist and then you have the, um, the country that's trying to expand. I mean, I actually like that because it had a, an element of political intrigue to it. And um, I don't know, I just the way that that second story uh, was put together, I really liked it because it, it was the, that little bit of advancement of civilization.
0: Right. And I think what, it opens with a line that's something along the lines of, well, war is coming, I think is the first line of that yeah. story. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, and it was, anyway, very well constructed. So um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the idea of institutional memory and the difference between, um, and I, era wants to talk about the difference between political and sex and uh, religious institutional memory but i think that they both have similar things in common and so Um, uh go ahead
2: before we move on to that can i just ask you guys uh something about the uh like the level one stuff in part one that i don't know if i was like supposed to get or not
0: okay sure
2: Uh, Do you guys know what the blueprint was that he uh, found and, like, made the beautiful piece of artwork copying the blueprint? Like, did did anybody figure out, like, what it was?
0: It's a radio circuitry board, I think.
1: Yeah, it's it's supposed to be, like, a a very minor piece of technology from a radio circuit board. It wasn't meant to be anything super important. And that's kind of part of the, the, I guess, that that actually does... uh, tie into what uh, red's talking about because they have no idea what this is for all they know it is uh, literally the most important piece of uh, technology that ever existed um the fact that it isn't they just they have no knowledge of it but they're so focused on retaining all possible uh, knowledge to preserve it for the future um that they're just they're hoarding all the technology all the technological information i should say
0: and that's an interesting thing that comes up in the second part is that the abbot of the of the monastery at that time admits we don't know what this is and we're waiting for somebody to come along and help us figure out what it is. We're just holding on to this knowledge that we don't understand because we know it's important. But we don't know why.
1: By so, the way, I made a mistake. I said that the second book was Let There Be Man. The second book is actually Let There Be Light. I just wanted to correct myself. Then. Sorry. Okay.
0: Well, I... I'm pulling out my Latin dictionary to fix it. <laughs> the, um, so I'm going to read a quote. The monks waited. It mattered not to them that no- the knowledge that they saved was useless. This knowledge was empty of content. Its subject matter was long since gone. To observe knowledge systems to knit together is to learn at least a minimum of knowledge of knowledge until the day that an integrator would come along. And so time mattered not at all. So that was getting to the that quote is that idea that we're holding on to this knowledge. So, what do you guys think about institutions and how they preserve knowledge? We've already talked a little bit about this, so we'll keep it short.
1: Well, um, the, well, Eric here. Um, this is a uh, a direct callback to I want to say it was the Franciscans uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire where they were trying to preserve uh, knowledge that the Romans had uh, collected and um, were trying to save it through the, um, I guess what turned out to be the middle ages. But so um, I'm going to follow on the the side of uh, institutional knowledge is fine as far as it goes, but it ends up getting calcified and they start just retaining knowledge. they start retaining or doing these actions uh, for their own sake and not solely for the, sake of preserving knowledge even though they had an, an important initial function what do was you actually
0: well i was going to say there was actually a russian monastery during the soviet union that did something similar it was uh, a hermitage that took that protected russian cultural symbols from the soviets that so it's not it ha- it's not hasn't just happened once the byzantines did it and then the when the byzantine empire was overrun they the there are Muslim scholars that that did a similar thing, but I don't think it's just about religion. But we can also talk about that, Yasna. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Yasna.
2: Uh, did somebody ask a question?
0: Yeah. No, I was just wondering what you think about how the institutional, the institutional pers- preservation of knowledge, is portrayed in this book.
2: Oh, I just thought it was interesting the way. Because the goal, because, like, from the quote you just read, the goal of of this particular uh, cult to Leibowitz was to just kind of, like, preserve all this knowledge, like, and eventually someone will come along and figure it all out and integrate it into, like, applicable knowledge and technology and so forth. Uh, so so they were, like, you know, dedicating, like, the monks that worked for that institution were, like, dedicating their lives to these processes that they, like, you know, work on for decades and maybe not even finish before they die and somebody else is going to come along and finish what they're working on but they don't care because like oh eventually it'll come in handy which which is just which to me like was really striking because at the time that i read this uh we were in the middle of the uh of the election and like nobody i talked to like every everybody i talked to about the election had this like life or death like like you know like civilization will not have a hope or will have a hope based on the uh, on the result of it and i was trying to be like no like we need to think like in terms of years and decades right now like like the changes that you want to see you know they're not going to come about they're not going to hinge on one election necessarily not that there's no relationship between what you're seeing today and that and whatever future you want right but but, like people like we're just incapable in that moment of seeing past like the next month, you know, and so yeah,,
0: this, yeah. And it's like <laughs> I mean I that actually really struck me too, like we live in this world of twenty four hour news cycles, and every single thing that happens is a thing that's giant and it's gonna destroy this our civilization, and I'm like, you know, the world's still here, guys, <laughs> it's gonna still be here tomorrow, <laughs> i think I think probably, um. The, with COVID going on, we also are all going
1: just a little bit crazy.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> Sarah,
1: but I mean, look, I think you guys make great points. But also, in in the book, um, there's a tension there between um, right, uh, like the secular, the, the, the secular versus the religious. But the religious end, and look, and I want to kind of pause here for a second to say that this is a very religious-positive book, so. Um, I think it it, it really does cast uh, religion in in the role of a protagonist. So, um, yes, for anybody interested in that, then I mean, definitely. But here in the book, the the religion or the religious people, or at least some of them, um, are the, the the moral center. They know how to morally use science. Whereas the people who are more secular are bereft of this moral compass and rely upon the, 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 these religious people to um, find their moral compass on, on how to use technology. And I mean, that's a tension that's existed throughout history, but it was made explicit, I feel like, in this book. And I kind of have some issues with it, but um, I thought that that was a very, and it was a point that's brought up a lot in the book.
0: I kind of disagree. I understand what you're saying. Um but I'm gonna push back a little bit. first of all, the m- religious people aren't all moral, and the book makes it pretty clear that the religious people aren't all moral. <laughs> There's a lot of ven- venality and whatnot um, but what the when the scientist wants to come in to the or wants to to explore the knowledge of the abbey, he wants them to bring the knowledge to his city, and his brother is. The king, I guess, would be the best way to call him, the king of the city. And again,
1: so he, he, huh? Go ahead, go
0: ahead. Oh, right. Uh, names, I don't know. <laughs> um, so he wants to bring the knowledge out of the abbey and into the city, and they, they're like, no, you have to come to us. And the and the reason why the abbot says you have to come to us is because they want anyone to who wants the knowledge to come to them and not some secular person taking it out of the abbey. And keeping it for that city, uh, so they wanted they wanted it to be a political knowledge. Like anyone can come and look, but you can't so, sequester it in your college.
1: So you, yeah, you just I think you, you made my point better than I did.
0: Um, <laughs> well, right. I don't think that's I, about that's morality, the, though. I think it's more about standing outside of.
1: Well, but we're getting to part two, and in, in part two, that the part of the reason that they, they they wanted to do that was so that Hannigan, that's the the leader of the was it the Kingdom of Laredo, the, the Abbey was saying, hey, look, the knowledge is here for humanity to advance and become more enlightened. So they took a, I don't want to say a pacifistic, but more enlightened view of technology. And to uh, Yasin's earlier point, they were not looking at it in terms of, well, you can win this war next year if we give you the technology. They're looking at more of, in a hundred years, will technology be used in a positive manner or not? So um that was the role that each one was cast in. And while I agree that there are uh, those two tenets of thought are out there, um, I just don't necessarily think that one necessarily has to be solely from a religious perspective and one solely from a secular perspective.
0: And that I agree with. that I agree with.
1: though
2: you you kind of made it seem like era that the book, cast only cast like the religion as like being the moral center and they're not really being a moral center outside of the religion but i feel like they did a good job of having the secular scientist kind of have his own uh moral framework that was just like different from theirs um and it kind of came out in a a few different ways and then and then later the, the the debate about euthanasia there seemed to be like a pretty strong moral case for the case that the secular doctor was making for euthanasia during like the nuclear, uh, like fallout and like people like dying from radiation poisoning and stuff.
1: Well, I, I'll, I'll agree with you that on part three, but that kind of gets into, I guess another issue, but to, to go right back to the, the scientist bomb in part two, um, Part of the issue, you're right that he did have his own kind of viewpoint, but if you recall, he became, he was persuaded or he became convinced of the abbot's sincerity and of his morality on uh, when and how and where to um, uh, learn the science and learn the technology. Um, uh, so I don't think I, that, maybe. I think so. I think so. Okay.
0: I think that. I don't know. I don't know if I completely agree with you there, but okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I kind of thought that he like that he was pretty recalcitrant, and that like the only like at the end he just kind of saw like the honor of the abbots.
0: uh, I don't.
1: Sorry. Okay. okay, I think maybe He he didn't accept
2: it for his. He didn't accept it for his viewpoint. He was just like, well. I'll we'll give you back the sketches of your defenses so the military can't use it, but I'm still not going to do anything to stop you know, okay. secular okay. Yeah, society okay. from taking this stuff over. Yeah.
1: Okay. okay, fair. Okay, Yasmin, yeah, I will I will edit my viewpoint to agree with what you said. Yeah, I... Yeah.
0: That's what I meant when I said I don't entirely buy what you're saying. Yasmin, yeah, so you did a good job. That was a much better way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we're going to move on and we've already touched on it briefly. So, it doesn't just happen in the um, in the first book, or sorry, in the third book. It also happens in the second uh, where there's hints of, or I mean, they straight out talk about euthanasia and suicide um, because the nuclear apocalypse is happening again and there's all in these people three. that are dying in book three. Um, and so I kind of want to read a, a couple quotes uh, that are said by people who are dying um well one isn't one is said by one of the warlords he says that they curse those who gave them gave us birth because of all their deformities and whatnot that's actually from the first book and then Mm -hmm. the doctor says pain is the only evil i know about in the third book so those are the two primary ideas i think unless yasno can come up with a better argument for euthanasia than those two the, the book gives, anyway. I mean, maybe you can come up with a better argument for, on your own, but.
1: Yasmin. Yes,
2: I mean, no, that was the kind of that was the most concise summary of the doctor's viewpoint. But he returned to it again and again, and kind of showed like know. the suffering that that he wanted to alleviate. Right,
0: I agree. That's that. That was the most concise viewpoint. It's one I kind of disagree with.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I I I agree that euthanasia was brought up again and again in, in the book but i think it's important i guess and here's where i guess we make another trigger warning um uh, there's a vast difference between euthanasia and suicide yes um, and um uh, the doctor represented that i guess more of the euthanasia viewpoint but um and i guess in, in, the, the setup of that is interesting in this world uh because of um The post-apocalyptic effects it's having the radiation poisoning the you know the the woman with two heads and and all all these different uh issues that are coming up um to me it was just meant to to illustrate the point of um where 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 do you draw the line to euthanasia but i wanted to contrast that with with that theme of suicide that was at least to me um omnipresent in in part three Um, And um, for people who don't know the author himself, he ended up committing suicide in 1996. Um, um, He had a long history of depression, apparently, and ended up in that. And I, even though I've never personally suffered from depression, just reading part three, I just felt like I was inside the head of somebody. Um, He was severely, severely depressed. And it just made me feel like you know, if I ever hear somebody talking like that or writing like that, I just feel like I should reach out and just help them if, if, if they get to that point. That was my very first thought, like, on rereading the book this time around. I don't know. What did you, what did you guys think?
0: So I have been suicidal um, twice in my life. Um, one was postpartum and one was in a, another event in my life. Um, and, yeah, if somebody's talking like that, you need to reach out. You need to... Um, let them know because when you're in that state of mind you are very very alone even with people around you and you feel like you're a failure for feel- not only do you feel like you're, you're a failure that's making you suicidal you also feel like you're a failure because you also feel suicidal does that make sense i don't know if that made sense like you you feel bad about yourself and so you want to commit suicide and then you feel also bad about yourself cuz you want to commit suicide does that make sense Am I explaining um, this at all correctly? Uh, so, like, it's double... Uh, it's two-sided. You feel like a failure. Yeah. You want to kill yourself. I, and then you want to kill yourself, so you feel like a failure. Right.
1: <laughs> the, the, the Double-edged sword.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And especially in these times, we have a lot... Suicide is just shot in this country. And so if you know anybody, we're all isolated. Reach out to them. But anyway, how do
1: you... <laughs> that's...
0: Maybe too much information for you guys.
1: No, um, no. Look, we appreciate you sharing, and, and, and you're right. Like, PSA to everybody. Uh, it's the time to reach out and help help your neighbors, help your friends, help your family. I mean, definitely.
0: Ooh. Uh, so what do you guys think the book has to say about it?
1: Yasna.
2: Yeah, so it kind of seemed like, uh, like, wasn't, if I'm remembering correctly, the secular authorities like when the when the bomb started dropping in the third part started issuing like these PSAs that uh that like oh if you have if you have radiation poisoning you um you know if, if you if you commit suicide it'll be unlawful and will we'll cut off your property rights or whatever and your family will suffer uh and it but if you you know check in to uh like a doctor that's like state sanctioned, and they approve you for euthanasia. Like that's how you have to handle it. And 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 it, and, and there was kind of this like uh, view of that from the perspective of the of the abbot. I think I, I think it was that that like oh they're just kind of like trying to like look humane and cover their asses with that, uh, but they're not like. But they're still like cause the the ones causing the suffering, uh, and they're and they're still like sanctioning suicide. Was that kind of like what the book said about that? I just wanted to make sure I understood that correctly.
0: Um, I I don't think that Abbott's view was that the secular. There there certainly he certainly did think there was a part of it that was um. These people are inconvenient, so let's help them move along, so to speak. Um, that was not how i felt that would pro- probably be the abbot's view yeah i think you're probably right i don't agree I mean, that that's what the secular authorities were doing necessarily
1: i i think yes i think you made a great point about that i think that that's right and also i think that that um if you want to go extra bleak i mean uh the, the this whole third part and the the kind of the the inevitability of it all um it was uh, was the author's point of saying look this is this is cyclical like you know we uh we went you know the the last apocalypse or the last holocaust was what 600 years before the first part and then you end with another apocalypse and you know humanity's having to desperately flee earth from a yet another apocalypse and i think his point would be look you know we're just going to keep on going through this again and again and again and Really, there's only one way out. That seems to be what he's saying, as quick as that sounds. I don't agree with it, but I don't. What he's
0: I don't know. I don't think that he. I don't think that is what he was saying, though.
1: I, I do because I think he says that you you'll find the salvation through religion. That that's what I think. The uh, to me that was uh, the impression I got.
0: So I'm going to argue for the Abbot's position <laughs> a little bit here. His point is that if you see the world in a materialistic way, then pain really is the only evil. But if you don't see it in a materialistic way, there's a certain dignity to life and you do not know what's going to happen. And so even if you know, because we all, let's face it, we all know we're going to die, right? That um, walking through pain is part of being human and gives you dignity to do it. That is what I think that the abbot's position would be um right and i I mean i mean like like for example hospice is one thing actively killing somebody is another does that make sense Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that there's a danger to there's a danger to that slope would be that it's the abbot's position and at the end the person with the two heads is the only person who survives
1: Right. But I think, uh, yeah, that that, that kind of gets into, uh, I don't know if you want to go there or not, but.
0: We don't have I, to get super theological, though.
1: No. Okay, um, then, I'll pass. <laughs> I'll pass. then I'll pass. I'm just I'll saying pass.
0: that that was, that's my point. We could talk about it maybe after we're done <laughs> Recording.
1: That's fine. Well, no, well, I mean, like, so, so, uh, look, I I don't disagree with you guys. I think both of you excellent points. Um, and I largely agree with them. I, I guess uh, to my point that like, the author's theme of everything cyclical, and this is all cyclical. If you recall, when the abbot Zerki was uh, uh, getting crushed um, at the very end, and oh, uh, man. that was yeah, brutal. It was. And but do you remember the, the skull? Um, uh, the skull fell out of the, the crypts, yep. and there was an arrow arrow in it. It was Francis's that, skull. It's supposed to be Francis's skull. It's a callback to part one. It's all we're just repeating uh it, it, everything's a cycle the second cycl- cyclical events of human history all we're doomed to repeat it over and over and over so that here oh
0: yeah so you can respond if you like and then i'll i have something to say to that but
1: yeah
2: i so <clears throat> i think that um i mean like i i enjoy that kind of uh that kind of cynicism i guess or or not or or even nihilism uh in in fiction sometimes of like viewing uh human society or secular society as something that like repeats these endless cycles of violence and self-extermination or whatever whatever um but like you know and i and i enjoyed it in this like it was it was good a good a good tale uh but as a materialist
0: (laughs) and And i did not mean that as an insult by the way i just want you to... i
2: and uh, yeah no no i gotcha no no, no I, I, I as a materialist i think that uh like that that kind of like view of things cyclic, cyclically um it, it 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 only it 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 kind of like like one of the one of the impl- implications of that and sometimes it's made explicit is like the denial of progress uh as like a anything more than like an ephemeral concept uh and like i just don't i don't agree with that uh i don't really need to expand on that i just don't agree with it but it, it's fine in fiction like I, i'm not like oh no he made that point how terrible i can't recommend the, <laughs> then, the other thing is i think that like
0: well you know if i am pres- could...
2: sorry so, I, I just wanted to respond to the doctor thing. Like, like the doctor makes the the reductionist argument: pain is the only evil I know. And like, if you t- if you take that and make it like an axiomatic truth, uh, I don't agree with it. Obviously, it's reductionist, right. but it's a reduction it's a reductionist statement that makes a powerful point about like the convergence of like, like kind of impotent imposing morals that are supposed to like preserve human dignity on 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 people like as if they're objects and like your subjective morality has to blanket over them and not giving them the dignity to like choose like when it when you know when they know they're like terminally ill and there's nothing but pain left uh like that you know so so it's like it was i thought that was a powerful line even if. Like I don't think it's like a moral you could organize your life around and actually, literally, t- you know, take literally, right? Right. I, I'm right. That's
0: kind of no, saying. no. I totally. In a in a way, um, the author is straw manning that argument by saying, "Oh, you just mean pain is the only evil, you know? Ah, if, if you're in pain, go kill yourself," which is not what people who advocate for euthanasia or whatever argue at all. It's a it's a much more nuanced argument. So it's it's a little bit unfair. His that statement. Does that make sense?
2: Oh yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, I, but I, I you know, it still just resonated think. with me when the doctor said it though. Yeah. Like, no I,
1: don't know. Yeah, anyway, I, I think you both I think you both make an excellent points. I just want to say that I think it's incredible that we can have this kind of discussion off of one line um, in a 300-page book, and I'm going to take this to say, and that's why I like well-written short <laughs> It's an incredible discussion.
0: So um, going back to your point about everything being cyclical, that's actually a very old view of the world. It's not. It's not just a Catholic view. It's a very old view. Lots of religions hold this idea that things rise up and then they fall down and things rise up and then they fall down. Um, and that the whole idea of continual progress is actually a modern idea. And so I just thought that that was something I would like to point out. It's something from the 18th, mid 1800s. It's not something that's
1: been around. Forever. No, you're, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Actually goes even before that, if you look at, uh, um, that was a view of, uh, that that's a view of, uh, uh, ancient China, certainly. And, uh, it went through, uh, uh, almost to the the 1900s in China, um, as, as a way of, of viewing the world, um, so I mean, do you actually believe that like that the history history cyclical or or is it modern? Like, me that, personally, that gets into, I mean, not, yeah, yeah. What do you think?
0: I think there's elements to both. I think there's elements to both because it's scary that we have so much progress, and I and you guys know I like get. Do lists where I'm grateful for running water in my house, and that my kids aren't going to die before they're five. You know, so I definitely appreciate the progress, but at the same time, we've also created technologies that could potentially destroy us, and that there's a tension between the progress and always that the this the the, the the cycle could start over. We could do something that we break it and end up back, you know, pre enlightenment if that makes sense. So I believe they're both true. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: That's weaseling um, out of it. <laughs> no,
1: no, it's fine. It's good. I, mean, and, and, yeah. I guess here's the thing I would say is that uh, it, was, it was Mark Twain. I think he said that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes a lot. Um, yeah. so,
0: first first so time is tragedy, second time is farce. Is
1: that? That's, is that Mark that's Mark's. marks. That's marks. But, I you know, almost said um, that
0: earlier.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I guess the, the so, yeah, I think that human nature is human nature. And I think the book does make that point. Like, you know, people are going to be human and, you know, um, as civilizations, they'll follow a pattern because that's what civilizations do. Um, I just think the difference today versus 500 years ago or a thousand years ago is that we have the technology to um, reset the world to zero <laughs> um, and we have that capability and that requires, hopefully, some uh, further enlightenment and forethought um, from, from people going forward. Okay.
0: So that's all very bleak. <laughs> and so now we'd like to talk <laughs> about something else that I actually this is, this is the part that makes me feel like this book is hopeful. Throughout the book, in the face of all the bleakness, you have people creating beautiful things. That's something that's really important to them. And I feel like what it's saying is that so they find this bl- blueprint. They have no, no idea what it is. He spends, was it 12, 20 years of his life making this beautiful thing? Mm-hmm. And then in the second book, you have uh, the scientist and the, the priest scientist, but the other scientists, too. They They just enjoy discovering things and they make this crazy contraption in the basement of the monastery to make light, you know. So how do you feel about that? We're creating against, we're lighting a candle in the dark, so to speak, instead of cursing it.
1: So um, I I guess I'll just jump in. Um, So one of my secret favorite characters from part one was the Pope. Um, Yes. Because if you go through all of part one and we Francis, who's hapless, relatively innocent, foolish, Uh, but firm and like his belief is pure. Right. And everybody around him, like all the other guys are, they're cynical or they're venal or they're, you know, they're, they're very materialistic even though they're part of his uh, organization. Uh, And then he goes and sees the Pope and the Pope is like, yes, this, this brings beauty to the world. What you did is a good thing. And, um, I thought that was a validation of the entire of Francis's entire arc, and I really did like that. Same thing with you, brother, uh, brother Cornhoer, Korn- or I think that's how you say his name. That's Don't ask me. made <laughs> that, that. That electrical treadmill, I uh, um, I like that too. Um, it's um, everybody's had that experience, I guess, at some point in their lives where they kind of do a science experiment because their teacher tells them to, and then it works, and you kind of go, "Wow, look, that worked." That was what I got. That Was the impression I got when I read that, and that that's cool, but that's neat, you know. Yes, yeah, not... You don't have to, um, <laughs> like,
2: okay, so, like, this, this, the, the, the points of the, the I, I, I believe the topic that everybody was kind of talking about was like these, like, points of light within the bleak landscape, uh, and like 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 you know the candle in the dark kind of mentality of of a few of the sequences or the a few of the characters endeavors i mean and yeah that stuff's beautiful uh and it, and it's great uh and and I, and i love that in this work i don't know if there are any examples besides the one you guys gave or not maybe the
0: uh well i maybe, would say
2: maybe, oh go sorry, ahead
0: i was i would say maybe the astronaut monk who decides to become a priest which there are two different things in the Catholic Church. Um, one has a lot more responsibility. But him saying, okay, I wanted to spend the rest of my life here in this monastery, but I'm actually going to go out and serve these people out here as we go out into space. That is also, I mean, that's a sacrifice that he's making. He's, he, he's giving his life up to bring hope to the stars.
1: Like, whether or not
0: you agree with his religious perspective, that's how he
1: sees it. I agree yeah, with that. That was but... pretty cool. Uh, I agree with that, but I'm going to say uh, to contrast with the beauty that, that that you're bringing up, the the main character POV in every chapter of the book dies at the end. Yep. He so, is.
0: But we um, all die at the end. That's what I would say.
1: Uh, I, yes. So, I mean, so uh, to, to the larger point of, you know, to kind of wrap, wrap everything together, like, don't let pain be the only thing. Don't let death be the only thing bring beauty to the world and pass it on to somebody else. That seems to be, that's what I took out of the book the second time I read it because um, it's like you can look at this book and just look at it as completely nihilistic or you can look at it as look, you know, um, in each part, there's, there's somebody bringing something important or necessary or beautiful to the world. And even though they ultimately don't survive, that piece of beauty still remains and that's passed on to the rest of humanity.
0: Any response? Yasna? I feel like we've been talking over you this whole episode.
2: <laughs> no, I'm fine. Um I mean I kind of have uh I have like kind of some unfinished thoughts about like the whole concept of like cyclical development versus okay. progressive
0: development. Yeah, go but, ahead. Uh, go ahead. Sure.
2: Uh yeah so i'm like i I was saying that i think that 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 i you know that i think that's fine in fiction and i see why i see why people feel that way and and it also makes a lot of sense to me that that this that the concept of like historical progress uh is like a, mo- a modern concept because before mo- modernity the there wasn't this like global global society uh that that made it less likely that when when there was progress in one area it would just it could just be like flattened out like you know now pretty much the only way we have to totally flatten out for the globe is the way that the that the book brings up which is you know nuclear Nuclear annihilation annihilation. (laughs) right and um and, and and i think that that's like that that's a threat that will that's going to exist as like a counterpoint to the concept of progress, or it's one of a couple major existential threats because there's also like climate change or whatever right but
0: or uh, a, a worse pandemic than what we're going through now, like a like a black plague level, fifty percent of the population but, is wiped out right
2: but I think, I think that for for the most part, like in the real world and not, not in the world of canticle that if we're able to move beyond the the nation state as the uh like fundamental organizing block of global society. Uh which I do think is possible but not inevitable. The alternative is canticle for Leobowitz, right? But but I think I think that it's possible that that we can you know put put the likelihood, if not the possibility of total annihilation in, in the past. Uh, and it's just uh, you know eh, like eh, so for and to me I think that's something that's within reach uh, like within you know a few generations and and so you know like I, I guess I'm just saying I'm more hopeful for humanity than Canticle is right. I'm a humanist I'm a materialist and I'm <laughs> progress, But
0: uh, I I would say the, the book is hit- great. <laughs> I would say that we could preserve the nation state and also not annihilate ourselves, but that's just my thought. <laughs> uh.
1: D- just remember, well, at the time...
0: Well, at the time well, the I said that in. because
2: of the antagonism, because oh. the antagonisms within nation states, are, are, or between nation states, are really what pose the possibility of of a Canticle for Leibowitz type of yeah. scenario, uh, not just like oh, secular society is in charge, right? But oh, anyway. but,
0: or maybe well, like
1: but, a
0: James you, Bond villain. If, if it. you look at,
1: uh, if you remember the time the book was written, mm-hmm. we were in the we were in the middle of the Cold War. Yep. I mean, it was, I mean, nuclear annihilation hung over everybody, um, uh, like this sort of damocles. And if you go to the third part of the book, there are uh, was it the Asian Confederacy or the Asian Coalition, and um, they, the two superpowers, the Asian Coalition, the Atlantic Confederacy, um, they're in another Cold War, and that Cold War breaks down. Um, so, um, the, if, if you look at the if you look at the history, I mean, yes, we've we've managed to, to dodge the bullet, but sometimes through ingenuity and grit and determination, and sometimes through sheer dumb luck. So um, I will take Yasna's uh, um, thought as beauty, um, as something that we can aspire to and hope for, uh, but we have to recognize the reality that, um, you know, those threats are still out there and they exist.
0: I would say that I don't think a, a a global world order is possible. I just don't. I don't. I think cultures, are, unless not certainly not within the next four or five generations, because our culture is there's there so many different cultures with so many t- competing ideas of how the world should be run.
1: Well, well, wow, we're getting really I, political. <laughs> I say, the, the reason I like what Yasmin has to say because it goes to another book that I love, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum of Canticle, and that's Foundation. Um, oh, and Foundation okay. takes but the also secular also part view. There too. It does. Is right? that Azimov
0: Foundation? It, yes,
1: Azimov yes. Foundation. Yeah. So, right in, okay. in that book, in that book, it starts off with the collapse of civilization, and then we're going to live through ten thousand years of, of barbarism, unless you follow the protagonist's path, in which case it would only be a thousand years, and you would reflower into to a new world order. And it's a very secular view of the same thing, and it's actually more hopeful than. Ah, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. but it's to me, I've in my mind, I've always viewed Foundation as the opposite end of the spectrum, Canticle of what happens when a civilization collapses. Like, uh, I don't think it's. Opposite, I, but I, that's okay. I think okay. That, that, well, well, let me re, let me kind of reframe. Sorry. That. One takes a cyclical view, and one takes a um a linear view. Right, that is so. true.
0: Um, so. A little thought experiment for fun. And I know I'm springing this on to you. How many years in the past can you go back and the knowledge that you have would be start to become useless? I don't know if this question, I'm not phrasing it quite correctly. But say like you go back to 1500 and you're like, we have these cool things called planes and cars and computers. But you can't actually, I can't make a computer. I don't know about you guys. Uh, maybe you can. But how far back before your your knowledge that you use to survive becomes useless just a guess just for fun this is not a test
1: yeah, so you want to go first you want me to
2: i mean i could probably make it work in like 1900
1: <laughs> Yeah. I'd be um, passionate. i'm pretty specialized so if we go back just like even a little bit too far i'm, I'm useless Yay! Yay for my profession.
2: I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have to learn new skills in 1900, right? But I, I could probably, like, you know, I'd I'd recognize the world in in <laughs> in a lot of ways and be able to, you know, to not immediately die, probably you know, <laughs> get a job and stuff. <laughs>
0: I remember we were. I was I I would say probably 1850 would be pushing it for me. Probably not past that, and probably more like 1900. Um. Especially if I had to grow my own food, then it would
1: not even be that. <laughs> um, I are, remember. Are we, oh, I just die. Uh, <laughs> are, are we allowed to take our families with us? Because if I'm allowed to take my wife with me, I could survive pretty far. She's she's pretty practical. She's <laughs> I'm useless, but if I can my, take her with me, I can make it.
0: <laughs> I remember watching. I don't remember what we were watching when the, when the kids were. Uh, they were preteen. And they're like, mom, what would you do when the apocalypse comes? And I'm like, honey, I would die. That's what <laughs> I would do. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I think I'd rather die. <laughs> okay. Um, any last thoughts? Are we ready to wrap it up?
1: I hope everybody... Yeah. Um, go ahead, Yasmin.
2: Oh, I was just going to say I'm, I'm good to wrap up after last thoughts here. But Go ahead.
1: Um. I hope everybody does t- to to read the book if they can. It's not long. Um, there's college courses on it. High schools teach it. Um, it's 100% worth your time if you want to read um, a book that, whether people recognize it or not, kind of set the foundation of what post-apocalyptic worlds uh, should look like. Uh, and it can be read as a level one, level two, level three, your choice. It can make it's got a lot of value.
0: I just say read it. <laughs> Yasna, do you want to say something?
2: No, this is a fun book, and I'm glad you guys recommended it to me.
0: That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all I got.
2: Awesome. Cool. <laughs> you can
1: drag me to marathon some other time, Yasna.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't necessarily inflict that on you. <laughs> I got dragged
0: into freaking Uplift, so we'll see. You will <laughs> like
1: Uplift. Uh, okay. you're going to like Uplift it's is, It is a It's a fun, that's a fun series it really is it's much brighter than this one okay, good Okay.
0: so, thank you so much for joining us please consider supporting the Legendarium on Patreon, thanks to Craig and the crew for bringing us together Joff Wu for moderating our subreddits Kipton for moderating our discord and Horizon Brave for starting this fun new hobby for the Legendarium podcast for the Legendarium patrons have a good night everyone
1: Good